This evening we're looking at Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. When you take a a broad view of these psalms, you'll see that Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, in which he spoke prophetically and in great detail about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 I'm talking about, not the one we've just read, the one just before before it, Psalm 22. It's all about the suffering of Jesus, who was to come into the world about a thousand years after King David uh, was in the world. In Psalm 22, verse 1, for example, it's written... If you just look over there to Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? In the fullness of time, precisely what we read here in Psalm 22, verse 1, happened with the Lord Jesus Christ crying out in a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And still in Psalm 22, verses 15 through to 17, again I remind you, this is these words were written or spoken by David a thousand years before Jesus came into the world. Look at verse 15 through to 17. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Those words clearly point to the crucified Saviour. Then looking at the next psalm, Psalm 23, David spoke about the Lord being his shepherd, who amongst other things leads his sheep beside the still waters. And when you get to the New Testament, to John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus declared himself to be the shepherd when he said, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So Psalm 22, clearly all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 23, clearly all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's no surprise to learn that the psalm that we're going to look at tonight, Psalm 24, yet another psalm of David, is also all about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not about Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. It's not about Jesus so much as a shepherd. But this time we're going to look at Jesus as the creator God, the Redeemer and the King of Glory. Obviously, as we look at him as the Redeemer, we will uh, see uh, him as the sacrifice for sin again. Coming now to Psalm 24, it's written in verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world 
and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. The earth is the Lord's. The earth belongs to Jehovah God. One thing that can be seen straight away is that David was definitely not an atheist and he definitely was not an evolutionist. See that in those first two verses there. In verse 1, David tells us that the earth, with all its furnishings, including us and all other creatures, belong to God, who created everything. God owns the earth and everything in it, lock, stock and barrel. Verse 2 takes us back to the third day of creation. Look at it again, verse 2. For he have founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. That takes us to the third day of creation as recorded in Genesis chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 where God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And it's not just Psalm 24 verse 2 that takes us back to creation. Other Psalms do so, such as Psalm 136 verses 5 and 6, where it is written, To him that by wisdom made the heavens... For his mercy endureth forever to him that stretched out the earth above the waters. And then there's Psalm 33 verses 6 and 7 where it is written, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the debt in storehouses. All of that agrees with Genesis chapter 1 where it can be seen that on the fifth day of creation God made, sorry, God created great sea creatures and everything, every living thing that moves which, with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. Then on the sixth day of creation, God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. In other words, they didn't evolve. God made them according to their kind. He made giraffes as giraffes. He made um, sheep as sheep and so on. According to their kind. Cattle according to its kind. And everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. Last of all, on the sixth day of creation... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When you consider Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, and all the other Bible verses that I've just quoted, the person who claims to be a Christian, but nevertheless embraces evolutionary theories... That person is a contradiction. 
even if he credits Almighty God with being the God of evolution, that is not good enough. The plain teaching in Psalm 24 and elsewhere is that God did not evolve his creatures. He made them according to their kind and he has ownership of all his creation. It really is as simple as that. It would have to be simple for me to understand. And it is that simple. Note that the Bible doesn't even entertain evolutionists and sceptics with various clever arguments to prove creation. Neither does it rely on support from creation scientists. It simply declares God to be the creator of all things. As it is simply but accurately put in one of the hymns, all things bright and beautiful, all creatures great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. The bottom line is that the Bible declares God to be the creator and furthermore it tells us that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. In other words, people have no excuse. God has declared himself to all of us through what he has made. Consequently, the wrath of God is upon all who suppress the truth and worship the creature rather than the creator. You would have to ask why it is that people insist that there is no God and they foolishly claim that everything owes its its existence to the Big Bang and to evolution. Why do you think people do that? When God has made himself so clear, he has declared himself to all of us through his creation Why do people still insist that there is no God and they embrace lies such as the Big Bang? Could it be something to do with people not wanting to be accountable to their maker? The Bible declares the creator God to be three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Ghost. The reason I tell you that is because what that means with regards verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 24, where you read there, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, for he have founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. When you read all of that, you ought to appreciate that the creation that creation is the handiwork of all three persons of the godhead and that of course includes the son of god the lord jesus christ the second person of the trinity for example in hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10 so that takes us to the new testament hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10 god the father 
says to God the Son, and you can look at it yourself, I've looked at it, I don't know how many times since I first saw that verse uh, some years ago, many, many times. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, God the Father says to God the Son, Thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. Incidentally, that is a quote from yet another psalm, Psalm 102, verse 25. And then there is Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, in which the Apostle Paul said concerning the Son of God, For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in the earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. That is, all things were created by the Son and for the Son. Having said all that, there are people, professing Christians no less, who claim to believe that the hands of Jesus were nailed to a wooden cross as he bare away their sin. And they may have a very powerful testimony about their faith in Jesus as their saviour from sin. But still, they reject what the Bible teaches about his creative handiwork, that the heavens are the work of his hands. Such people are dangerously inconsistent, to say the very least. And you would have to wonder if their Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. For me, and presumably for all you true believers in here, the wonder of the cross is that the incarnate creator laid down his life as he carried away our sins in his body on the tree. Let's have a look at verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that have clean hands and a pure heart, who have not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Verses 3 and 4 describe the kind of people who have a hope that reaches all the way to heaven and who have access to a holy God. They are people who have clean hands, a pure heart, people who have not lifted up their soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully. Well, there you have it. Such people have a place in heaven. The trouble is that as sons and daughters of Adam, that most certainly is not a description of me and it's most certainly not a description of anyone in here or anyone in this fallen world. However, the good news is that God has provided a way for people like us to enter his sanctuary with a holy boldness by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by a new and living way that he 
has opened for us through the veil, the curtain, which is his flesh. What that means is that if you really are trusting in the creator God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your saviour from sin, then you have been purified. You have been made holy by his precious blood and, and praise God for that. That is the only way that any of us can enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, through the veil that is his flesh. Let's have a look at verses 5 and 6. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Well, straight away we know who that is, the God of his salvation, Jesus. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. That word selah that uh, you have at the end of that verse 6, it's really telling you to just pause, to look at that verse and to give it some thought. Don't be too quick to move on. In Psalm 20, rather in this Psalm 24 verse 5, it's written, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord. This is the one with clean hands, a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to idols, nor sworn deceitfully. No doubt that person will put his clean hands to good use as a Christian living for the glory of God. But having said that, we can see in this verse that salvation is first and foremost not about you or me doing good works with our clean hands and with our pure heart. It's about receiving divine favour. Divine favour. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. It's not about giving. It's all about receiving from God. As it is written in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. The one who gives every good gift. And every perfect gift. It's not of works. Salvation. Lest any man should boast. It's all about receiving blessings from the Lord. So that there will be no one in heaven saying, this place is a much richer place for having me here. No, it's all by the grace of God. As for the blessing that he will receive, what is the blessing that he receives? The one who has clean hands, a pure heart, who has has ascended the hill of the Lord. What is the blessing that he receives? Well, when you turn the pages of history to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said to the Christians in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy 
and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Accepted in the beloved. That is our position before God. Accepted in the beloved. Therefore, never forget that if your hands are clean, your heart is pure. In other words, if you have been purified inside and out, then you are someone who has received not some, but all or every spiritual blessing in Christ. We see in verse 5 that the man who is blessed receives the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, I've already said, uh, certainly for me, when I read the God of his salvation, I immediately think the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of my salvation. And you, dear Christian, you have received the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your acceptance before God is and always will be in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose righteousness you are clothed, in his righteousness you are adorned. If that is you, having trusted in Jesus as your Saviour from sin, you have every reason to echo the words of the prophet Isaiah, who said, I think it's in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. Am I correct there, Ross? Isaiah 61, verse 10, anyway. Find it yourselves. Exactly, thank you. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You, If you belong to Jesus. And you've ascended the hill of the Lord. As one who has clean hands. And a pure heart having been cleansed and made fit for heaven by the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read these words from Isaiah and you can say, you can read these words knowing for sure that you have been covered and adorned with, with garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness of your great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Truly wonderful. Alternatively, if that is not you, if the Lord Jesus Christ, who laid the foundations of the earth, is not your righteousness before a holy God, then it is not as if you are without a righteousness. We all have a righteousness. Don't worry. Well, you, sh- you ought to worry. I was just going to say, we don't walk around naked, as it were. You either wear the robes of righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ or you wear some other robes of righteousness. Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, which is described in the Bible as 
filthy rags akin to menstrual rags. Also, the Apostle Paul described everything that he achieved outside of Christ as a Jew, a religious Jew, before he became a Christian. He described everything that he'd achieved as dung or excrement. If you leave this world having rejected Jesus, the Creator God, as your Saviour from sin, all that you have to commend yourself to God with are filthy rags and dung. And that's it. Let's have a look at verses 7 through to 10. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. In these verses we see the Lord Jesus Christ declared to be the King of glory no less than five times. I'm not looking at anything significant about the number five except to say to you that that's a lot of times in just a few verses. First of all, in verse 7, there is a call to gates and to everlasting doors to be lifted up to receive the King of glory. What can that mean? Well, amongst other things, that points to the gates of heaven being lifted up when Jesus, who truly does have clean hands and pure heart, ascended the hill of the Lord and he entered into his glory, having completed the work of redemption that his Father gave him to do. Also, verse 7 may be seen as a reference to the doors of our hearts. Unless the saving grace of God reaches us, we continue to be alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us. I'm quoting Ephesians chapter 4 verse 18 here. I say it again, we, we continue to be alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us, because of the blindness of our hearts. That's the natural condition of each and every person who is not in Christ. Apart from the grace of God, our hearts will forever remain firmly closed to the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. However, God in his mercy opens hearts to attend to the gospel of Christ. As was the case with Lydia in Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16 verse 14, the Apostle Paul said, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. Presumably Paul was preaching the gospel. He must have been. Paul was someone who said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel of Christ. So, Paul was preaching 
And Lydia heard. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. She didn't do it. The Lord opened her heart to receive the gospel message and to receive Christ. Also, it has been said that the gates and the everlasting doors can refer to churches. Churches like this, this one here. With the Lord Jesus Christ standing outside and knocking at the door, as would appear to be the case with the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. In Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, it is written, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. It seems unthinkable, doesn't it, that the King of Glory would stand knocking at the door of one of his own churches, that he would stand outside this church knocking the door. But but is that not the case when churches, their ministers, their members are at best lukewarm? Having little or no love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Churches that are divided, churches that take a higher priority on entertainment than on the word of God. Do you imagine that Christ is to be found in those churches? Hardly. Jesus is the king of glory, having left his throne of glory for the pangs of death, where upon the cross he slew the ravenous foe that gorged all human race, and now he is seated in heavenly glory. Last of all, in verse 10, the Lord Jesus Christ, having triumphed over sin, Satan and death at the cross, is declared to be the head and crown of the universe, as Spurgeon put it. Finally, this Psalm of David, which was written about a thousand years before the Creator God pitched his tent amongst his creatures in this world of sin, presents a real challenge for all of us. It presents a challenge to all of you who profess faith in Jesus to consider whom your Jesus is. Is he the creator God who is now declared to be the king of glory having humbled himself and made you fit for heaven through his life of perfect obedience and by his sacrificial death at the cross? And to those of you who continue to reject God and choose rather to embrace the evolutionary lie, despite the heavens declaring the glory of God and the skies proclaiming the work of his hands, the message for you is very simple. Repent and receive the creator son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king of glory for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen.